0: Welcome to the Words Matter Podcast, the Course Health Series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter Podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're up to the fifth episode of this Course Health Series in which I'm speaking with the authors of the Course Health book, titled Rethinking Causality, Complexity, and Evidence for the Unique Patient. And remember, you can download the book for free, or you can order a hard copy. Just go to wordsmatter-education.com, and in the show notes to each episode, there'll be links to access the book. And so in this episode, I'm speaking for the final time with Dr. Eleanor Rocker and Dr. Rani. Lil Anjum, about Chapter 5, which they co-wrote titled Complexity, Reductionism, and the Biomedical Model. And this chapter is a comprehensive analysis of some pretty hefty topics whose depths are rarely appreciated in the day-to-day discussions in healthcare, practice, or academia, or indeed Twitter. How often do we use terms and concepts such as reductionism or biomedicalism without really knowing the premises of these positions. Fortunately, Ron and Eleanor do a great job of laying out these positions clearly so we can all have a greater handle on these theses so as to be more deliberate and purposeful and accurate when using them or dismantling them. So in this episode we talk about what reductionism is in medicine and the relationship between reductionism and the biomedical model. We ask what it means to be a reductionist. Reductionism is frequently misrepresented or straw-manned, so we attempt to still man the position and offer an argument for its strengths, merits and contribution to healthcare. We talk about the role of the biomedical model in the over-medicalisation of people. We talk about the biopsychosocial model and how this acknowledges complexity in theory and practice, but how the coarse health approach argues we need to move beyond the BPS model by changing our ontology in relation to causation and how we can learn from ecology to resist the fragmentation of complexity and preserve it in its wholeness. We talk about, again, the patient's narrative and the causal story that it can tell and finally we talk about how our ontological assumptions about complexity affect our clinical practice. So as ever, I really enjoy speaking to Eleanor Rani The discussion on reductionism, biomedicalism and complexity will help us further analyse and self-reflect on our own philosophical biases and assumptions which we bring to research and practice. And once they're explicated and known, we can begin to change them. So once again, I bring you Dr. Rani Lilanyam and Dr. Eleanor Rocker. Rani and Eleanor, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having us again. Thank you, Oliver.
0: So, on this episode, we're going to talk about your chapter five, which is titled Complexity, Reductionism, and the Biomedical Model. So, there's lots to say about this chapter because much of the, the topics discussed, you're pretty much arguing against, or certainly the biomedical model, neurological complexity. And reductionism. So these are these are opposing positions to you. So it'll be really nice to get, I think, a bit of a as much as we can, um, a, a dissection onto some of the yes. topics because they're so, you know, particularly biomedicalism. It's and reductionism. They're so often criticised and probably rightly so for their limitations for contemporary kind of person-centred healthcare. But I think if we start by just laying out what is reductionism particularly with, with reference to how you guys talk about it in the chapter?
1: So I can start by saying something about reductionism in general, because in, in philosophy, reductionism is something that we discuss from a theoretical perspective, but it has a lot of practical implications. And so reductionism can be understood in two different ways. So one is that it's a kind of a part-whole relationship, So if we think that any kind of whole thing consists of parts. So for instance, you can say that uh, something that is a complex phenomenon, it's complex because it has many parts. So for instance, if you talk about the society, it's a complex thing because it consists of many individuals with all of their different interests. And and an individual is a complex thing because it exists of many uh, organs and cells and atoms and, and, and the idea there is that you can always zoom in and go further and further down. And at some point you get to the core where you cannot get any further. And, and the atom was supposed to be that thing. And then, well, it turned out there was even more basic things. So so uh, if we want to understand uh, complexity, then we need to zoom into the parts. That would be one way to reduce something. And And, and those parts eventually they come down to some kind of physical level. So we think that, for instance, a culture is a very uh, non-physical thing, uh, but a, a culture belongs to a society. And society consists of people. And people, they have physical existence. So, so you come down and down, and there wouldn't be culture without these individuals, for instance. And there wouldn't be these people without their organs and their cells. So so it's it's a way to understand complexity by looking at the most fundamental in the most micro sense, you know, you, 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 find the micro level. So, so reductionism is built on the idea that there are these mm. levels of nature, you know, and that there is a, an ultimate bottom level. And, and that's where you get rise to things like bottom up causation. If something happens on a cultural level, it, it must be because something happened on one of these lower levels and and if we really have an understanding of the complex reality then then it's this bottom level that we need to get to so that's one way to understand uh reductionism i think which is an ontological way to understand it it's something that is real so levels of nature they are real so each of the sciences for instance will deal with different levels so so uh physics deals with the physical and
0: at the risk of just diving to into a black hole, but when you say "real," what does that mean? And also, when you say "physical," what do you mean? Because when you when you're beginning to differentiate things from being physical or non-physical, are you not slipping into dualism, or is it, or maybe not? But what's the what what's the what what does "real" mean?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's uh, a very relevant question because. Uh, A lot of reductionism is materialist. It would say that things are only only real insofar as they are material. You know, so for instance, the mind is real because you can explain everything going on in the mind by referring to the brain, you know, and the brain is physical. So so for instance, if you believe that there could be uh, something mental or cognition without a physical manifestation that would explain uh, what's going on. Uh, people would say that's, that's a mystery, you know. So, so a lot of science is reductionist in that sense and materialist in this sense. But of course, there is a question of, for instance, dualism. So do we want to reduce the mental to the physical? Because then it's not dualism anymore, you know. Or do we want to see that there is something mental that is real, independently of something physical. And and then it becomes problematic and you get the placebo effect and you get all these mysteries. But yeah, it is is an ontological question. What is real and what is most real? And and according to the fiscalist reductionism, it's the physical level that is the most real and the causally efficacious level.
0: And so as I said that reductionism is often thrown around as an insult. It's the worst thing in the world to be called a reductionist, as it is almost as bad as a dualist. But reductionism has got us somewhere, right? So it's obviously got us to to, um, to where we are now. And, and with all the limitations of medical healthcare, it's delivered some really helpful interventions and investigatory techniques and hopefully hopefully a vaccine uh, in the next few weeks. So if you were going to steal man, reductionism, you're really kind of sing its praises, point out its positive parts, or parts, that's a bit of a pun, isn't it? Parts is probably appropriate. What would they be?
2: Well, we could say that because of this reductionism uh, uh, way of looking at illness, we were offered for the first time a rational way to, to treat illness, and that was back in the 19th century. So before that, it was a bit of a mystery. So health and illness were considered uh, all sorts of things, kind of courses that would invade human body, etc. So because of that, there was also no rational way to, to cure it, to treat it. But we can say that since the germ theory of disease and bacteriology, then were offered an explanation of at least certain illnesses and this paves the way to a rational treatment. So if we want, uh, someone considers Virko uh, as the father of pathophysiology and he said, he was the first to say that every pathology arises from a damaged cell. And this uh, way of thinking paved the way to the work of Koch and Pasteur and uh, other theories uh, who, who then uh, developed the theory of uh, bacteria and uh, germ theory of illness. So there's something there that is very small and there is cert- there's a certain level, which is a level we cannot see and that you can transmit, because this idea that illness could be transmitted somehow from one to the other was really not thought about before that. And then also it paved the way to a certain theory of cancer. So why do we have cancer? Because it is a mutation at the cellular level. DNA wasn't uh, wasn't in place, the idea of DNA, but there was the idea of some kind of genetic material that was transmitted. So we can say that because of this uh, way of thinking, way of thinking about illness as some parts that uh, a lower level of complexity that is not into place is damaged, this brought like to changes that changed, you know, human history, we can say. We got antibiotics, we got vaccines. But what we got is not only practical changes, we also got the cultural inheritance from this. And what remained is this idea that illness is always the malfunctions at the lower level organization. And uh, this is a way that is so deep into us now. And for these good reasons, uh, I would say, we can see why it became so strong in our belief. But the, pro- the point is that it um, expands to all areas of the way we can think about illness and health. So not only these parts, uh, these types of illnesses. For instance, it is not uncommon, or I would say it is common to think about, for instance, psychiatric disorder as malfunction of neurotransmitters. So something we can fix by uh, fixing uh, levels and balance in the, in the neurotransmitters. So in this way, psyche is seen as the result of cellular interaction. And uh, I would say this way of thinking is what uh, reduction is in medicine. The, the idea of focusing on biomedical and, and physiological explanations for more or less everything you can think about. There are a lot of examples, but for instance, uh, with a good intention of offering the best offer uh, to, to the right children, for instance, in developmental programs, so the intention is of course always good. Uh, so what was the proposal? It was that, uh, you know, you should be able to recognize fragile children or children who would respond better to certain programs so that you could offer them the best the approach for the development. So um, some, uh, uh, some suggestions were to uh, actually look at their genetic genetics or uh, the type of genes and mutations they were expressing because uh, we're able to, to see that some type of genes, some type of mutations, some people who carry a certain type of mutation have been linked to depression. Other type of alleles have been linked to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So the idea is that why don't we really like genetically uh, map these people so that we can understand and predict the way they're going to react to certain uh, programs or to, to certain approaches, etc. So this, is, this would be a, the example of a reductionist way of thinking. So you start from the most basic physical level, the lowest level of complexity we can approach, in order to understand what is going to happen at the highest, higher level of complexity.
0: So so why does it work? Why does reductionism seem to be, why does it seem to work for some things and not others? So it seems to work for curing COVID, fingers crossed, but doesn't seem to work so well for curing or helping people with ADHD or ADHD type symptoms. So what's
2: the what's the difference there? well i mean that it uh, that reductionism for sure works for covid we're not uh, sure <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm an optimist so that that the same type of uh, for instance the same type of uh, approach will work for anyone who has covid i don't think that uh, that will work but as you say yes there are some uh, type of problems where uh, um, I mean it, it is more instinctive and also it is probably true that a reductionist approach works because for instance infectious disease. So uh, infectious disease has as one of the causes uh, the infective agent which is something that is at a, a lower level so it's something we can uh, do something about but let's not forget that this is not the only factor that causes the infectious disease. Probably it is a necessary but not sufficient factor uh, in many cases. So uh, there are people who get COVID and don't get sick, or even that get uh, in touch with people with COVID and don't even get the the virus. So um, you always have this uh, possibility of uh, understanding things from a less reductionism perspective, and I think that this always brings you something.
0: So it seems like reductionism at some point was. Was assumed to be the most effective, sensible way of proceeding with medicine and and medical research. What what's caused the the shift or the turning point to recognise that perhaps it's not all it's cracked up to be, and there are alternative perspectives to take on on illness or disease. Is it just the fact that we've appreciated the complexity or recognised the person, and therefore we reduction doesn't seem to be useful at all? Why are we not still here promoting reductionism?
2: Yeah, well, I guess that one of the uh, causes was that reductionism fails to account for a lot of things we're seeing, uh, at least now in current times, more and more. Which is, for instance, this kind of illnesses that are uh, um, spreading as if they were like a pandemic, but they're not. Um, they're not caused by something that we can easily recognize. So. And uh, examples could be made by these medical explained symptoms about which we talked about in Mm. the previous episode. So Mm. these are uh, um, conditions in which the person is ill in the sense is feeling bad and is in a condition that is disrupted for the everyday life, but but you cannot find something wrong at the physical level. So for instance, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, lower back pain and people are suffering but it's often not possible to to find what is what is wrong there. We can make all the analysis and still nothing wrong to be found. And still there is something going on. So this biomedical model fails, for instance, to explain these things.
0: Yeah, that's a really useful example. So the application of reductionism or the biomedical model applied to things like back pain or IBS. Just failed to to generate, or the model wasn't able to reduce down a particular biological cause. There there wasn't one there. So, if we think about back pain, most instances of of back pain, there there aren't structural physical changes in the spine which seem to map to or relate to the person's development of pain. So, there doesn't seem to be a clear physical cause, and there, there may well be a biological cause. in in the sense if if we regard the brain as a biological entity. But yeah, I think that's a a useful description to say it just didn't seem to to suit the task or wasn't up to the task of of shedding light on these conditions.
2: Yeah, and there is also the contrary, the other situation in which actually there is something wrong physically in the person. You could find something and uh, actually nothing is happening to the person. So I remember twice in my life when I visited the orthopedic doctor and uh, they told me, okay, like, what uh, What are you using for your pain? Uh, would you, like, what are you doing normally? And i like, uh, what do you mean? Which pain? I, I don't have pain. And that's because, you know, they look at me and my back and uh, from the way my back looks like, I should be in pain actually, but I was never so... And also these things you cannot... And there are many, many worse examples than these and this also is not possible to account for with the bio- biomedical model so there's something there the basic level uh, more foundational or or lower level uh, of physicality but at the higher level of complexity it doesn't have any influence.
0: And just so we're, we're clear with terms and just now we've we've all been using biomedicalism and reductionism somewhat interchangeably. And I just wonder if it's worth disaggregating those. And st- it, uh, of course, they're closely tied. But if we're going to be clear about terminology, which is which, are they just interchangeable terms, or there are some subtle differences? Or one is talking about one's an ontological description, and one is more of a medical theory. So there
1: is a there is a distinction uh, in philosophy between. Uh, reductionism as an ontological thesis where you say this is how the world is whatever complexity you can find or whatever higher level phenomenon you can find there will be a lower level explanation for it or a lower level level cause but um, there is this other approach which is a more epistemological one that says that the methodology you use is to go via reductionism and see what you find so it doesn't mean that you would assume that everything in the world could be reduced to its uh, its lowest level or that it would be a kind of physical level uh, at the bottom for it but but it means that you think that well if we reduce if we zoom in and if we look at this level what can we find and reductionism as a, as a metho- methodology that could be what the biomedical model is doing and what philosophers have said because philosophy is actually quite reductionist. It, it's a huge, it's a huge uh, assumption. I mean, it's not something that you easily criticize in in philosophy reductionism, and I don't think it's easily criticized in medicine either. I mean, you can find a lot of problems, but uh, it doesn't it doesn't prove that an answer cannot be found ultimately. So at some point, we are waiting for this reductionist explanation, but. It was a lot of success, as um, as Eliana said, from the reductionist methodology. And uh, so there's one example with when we were developing computers and computers were uh, compared to the brain and the brain was studied also in light of the computer thinking, you know, so they became more and more merged into each other. But if you're reductionist, what you might do is you're going to say that the phenomenon uh, the higher level phenomenon, for instance, like the mind, <laughs> uh, can be explained by a more physical property, for instance, the brain. So uh, what people have done, for instance, is to say that, well, a lot of feelings are not really feelings. They just come down to these uh, chemistry, chemical uh, uh, reactions in the brain. There are books about uh, the chemistry of love. Uh, so, what you feel on a higher level is really it's something that could, in principle be stimulated bottom up. So so this this thinking about reductionism as an ontological thing is the idea that this reality is nothing but its physical realm. And the nothing but, we see it a lot in medicine because once you have a medical a biomedical cause for an illness, we tend to hang on and focus only on that. So as Elena was saying, you know, so we know we know about uh, virus. But what we don't focus so much on is why do some people get ill and other people don't get ill. And that's not so interesting for us because we have the physical cause. And if we also then find a physical cure, then why should we care about these other things? We, we have to start caring if the physical Cure fails to cure uh, a whole bunch of people, you know. So, so that's when you have to say, well, could there be something else? Like with the ulcer, so there is a bacteria like Helicobacter pylori. Yeah, and and that bacteria is like it's a sine qua non. If you didn't have it, you wouldn't get the ulcer. And before that, we used to think, well, it matters if you have, if you have a lot of stress, if you drink a lot of alcohol, coffee on an empty stomach, smoking in the early morning, you know. And then once they found the bacterium, people were like, "Ah, oh, you can do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, it's all this bacterium. And But then they know that, well, the triggers <laughs> are maybe all of these other things because so many people have the bacterium, and as Elena was saying, but they don't get sick. And, and autism is another issue because autism used to be this quite social uh, diagnosis where you, you lack communication skills. And suddenly it was this idea that well there should be a physical cause, maybe something in the brain and then they find stuff in the brain, but not everyone who has this stuff in the brain has autism and then it becomes you, you start talking about high functioning autists or people who you know hide their autism behind very good communicate communication skills. You know, and then you have taken away the whole point of the the problem and said no, it's actually something physical. But there is not, there isn't this one to one relation between the physical and the phenomenon. So it's a bit like the genes. You know, if you have the gene, but you don't have the phenotype, uh, it, it becomes a problem.
0: So that probably nicely brings us on to the saviour, which is the biopsychosocial model, and this is gained. Huge traction, you know, within healthcare and many, many different disciplines. And, you know, from whenever it was seventy seven with Engel, looking to to recognise some of those other factors from a systems theory perspective. I just wonder, perhaps you could lead us on to how the biopsychosocial model sought to address some of those those issues with the biomedical model, and then at the same time, or even maybe not at the same time but probably afterwards to tell us even the, the limitations with the biopsychosocial model how maybe it doesn't go far enough and you say in the chapter that we need to go beyond the biopsychosocial model and that will lead us on to to your thesis of causal complexity
1: yeah you can you can add something to the complexity by saying that well it's not just the physical or the biological or the biomedical level that is interesting there are all these other factors too and we need to consider them and then uh, you start looking at causes from the from the psychological and from the social uh, realm and of course you can you can pile on and add and it's still yeah the the phenomenon is going to be complex and it's going to consist of more parts because suddenly your health is not just about your body it's also about the things you experience and it's about the setting. Uh, that you're in but what we're saying in the book is that if we wanted to have an anti-reductionist model so if the biopsychosocial model is supposed to look at the whole person if it's a whole person uh, model it needs to be more holistic <laughs> than <laughs> the biomedical model And it needs to be more holist in the way that it looks at complexity and the way it treats complexity. Because you could say that, well, yeah, we are thinking about the whole. But when we analyze the whole, we see that there is a biomedical level, there is a mental level, there is a social level, and all of these things affect your health. And also they are affected by your health, you know, in your life. But if we go to scientific methodology, which medicine is within, they need to separate causes and risk factors. You know, they need to look at one by one. And this is the problem with complexity for any scientific methodology. It is that if you test two, three or more causes at the same time, you don't know which of them are actually doing the work. So, so this is why the, the methodology comes from this idea that the cause is something that should make a difference to the effect So if I have a headache and I take a paracetamol and drink a glass of water and I think, yeah, that might work. But I also heard that yoga is going to be really effective. So I do some yoga exercises and then maybe I go for a walk because I think the air in here is really dense, you know, and I've been sitting in front of the computer. So I do all of these things and then the headache goes away. Then I cannot know which of these things made the headache go away. And and scientifically, you need to know. I mean, I might be happy that the headache goes away, but scientifically, we are not happy with that kind of test. So so that's why we say that it's very um, very hard to be a holist when methodology requires fragmentation. So if you're saying that uh, a whole person is the sum of different parts, (laughs) so the social on one side, the mental on the other, and then you have the biological at the bottom, then we're still in an understanding where uh different specialists can look at those different parts and then hopefully as a whole person I'm taken care of.
0: And I think that you you hit the the, the nail on the head there that that at least in my experience of teaching and clinical practice with the biopsychosocial model, as much of a progression as it is on the biomedical model, you still begin to see things in compartments, whether these are social factors or psychological factors or physical biomedical factors. And whilst the model is really helpful to 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 help you see the kind of landscape of different potential causal factors, maybe it's just the name or how it's described, but it's it still somehow... Um, encourages you or inadvertently encourage you to see things in 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 separate separateness. So anti-wholeness, you know, so you know, to what extent are there social factors playing a role in this person's pain or illness? To what extent are there psychological factors? And that there isn't a great connection between those different factors which 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 can be easily applied. And so you you begin to label patients as either psychologically okay you know, orientated problems or socially orientated problems or biomedically orientated problems. So it just gives you more individual labels or causes to, to, to attribute to patients.
2: Yes. And I think that it's the writer Annie says that we have few tools in science to study complexity as what we mean in the book. So in the book, we mean by complexity. Not the sum of a lot of parts who interact with each other in a very intricate way, but we mean more what uh, you would mean in ecology. I think ecology is uh, a field where we actually can find this way of thinking and also some of this methodology looking at the whole, like a sum uh, like made by parts that interact with each other, but also change each other by the interactions. So we lose the, the parts are losing their identity in the whole.
0: Beavers, tell us about beavers.
2: Yes, I always make the example. <laughs> I like the example of beaver and, uh, and dams and, uh, and the environment. But I think it really comes from this ecological way of looking at the ecosystem as something that uh, changes its parts. At the same time, though, the parts change the ecosystem. So species living in a place, they change the place but also the place changing species because, I mean, they have to adapt. And I think it's so much easier in ecology to get uh, to to this idea of complexity rather than, you know, you would never think in ecology, okay, I take this species of tree and I take the, you know, uh, the animals living in it and all the vegetation under, and then I I grow them separately and then I can put them together again. I mean, this this sounds, uh, Absurd, and everyone will think that I'm uh, kind of dumbing up the situation, but this is actually what we do in the lab at least.
0: Can you just compare the Lego bricks analogy with the beaver analogy?
2: Yes, so the the Lego brick would be the the other way of thinking. So you would think, you know, there are different Lego bricks and they don't all match together so you can say you take one lego brick uh, with six uh, you know buttons and will always fit with another one which has uh, a compatible shape so you could say that you think in a complex way because uh, you think that lego bricks only fit with other special lego bricks and then we can you can put them together in a million different ways but you know this lego brick it is context sensitive because of some kind of identity that it always maintains. So it interacts in different ways, etc. But you can always take it apart and it will always remain the same. Then you can build something completely different, no? A, a castle or a, you know, an animal. But the, the, the very Lego bricks will, will always be the same. So when we think about uh, studying uh, uh, the genome and thinking about how genes uh, interact with each other, this could be a way of thinking. This has been a way of thinking for a long time. Now it's been changing more and more. I mean, I think that we don't think like that anymore, actually.
0: And so that's consistent with the reductionist ontology, that these are just a, a range of parts that sit separately from one another. And don't change.
1: So it doesn't have to be. If you can be a reductionist that only says that, well, yeah, you have you have more interactions and change. But the change or interactions that we are interested in are the ones that go on at the lowest level. You know. So so you could say that that it needs to be uh, ultimately a biochemical level, for instance, when you deal with uh, with medicine and health. Uh, so you don't have to say that it is like Lego bricks. But if you think like Lego bricks, it's it's very easy to be a reductionist. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you can have biological reductionists who would still say that you can never go uh, from <clears throat> biochemistry to chemistry, for instance, who would say that there is something that wouldn't be possible to reduce. So uh, you could choose a level and say, this is an emergent level. It is a new level, and we don't go below that. But I think this part-whole idea is what really gives uh, reductionism such a, a, a plausible, you know, it's such a plausible position because we know that everything consists of parts.
0: Mm. I was, uh, yeah, I was going to say that you've got a really nice section in the in the chapter, which I'll just read out because it's, in front of me, but I really like it because you, so it doesn't deny that there are parts and that's the key thing that, and you say in, in your chapter five, when talking about the ecological turn in medicine, you say that this is not to deny the obvious. We all consist of parts, liver, heart, brain, and so on. And there is much general and indispensable knowledge to gain about organs, tissues, and cells by observing their behavior in experimental and isolated contexts. And this is the crux of it. The tricky part comes down to when we need to make sense of such knowledge for the treatment of the whole person. And that's it, I mean tricky underplays it. <laughs> Fifteen podcasts are tricky. This is applying you know applying knowledge of parts to whole people. that's I think where where so many people find or that I don't know people, professions, societies find it so challenging to do
1: it seems that um, once we take once we think of this parts whole of a person it's very easy to say as Eliana was talking about earlier that the the illness belongs to one of your parts you know so if you have a complex problem you might have something that is a, a mental problem and a physical problem and a social problem and then you can treat them by going to different specialists. <laughs> you know so that's that's like this uh, this idea that that comes from reductionism that says that a, a person is almost like a machine where you could take someone apart, fix uh, individual parts and put them together. you know, which is which is something that medicine can do for some problems. you know so it, so that is very impressive and it's really important but what we say ontologically is that when you do something with one part so you maybe change you take out or you add something it will interact causally interact with so many other things that you wouldn't just affect that part itself so that's why we talk about things like emergence uh, and demergence and causal interactions, and and it's not something that scientists or practitioners are not aware of. We know that there are interactions, but these interactions are usually made. Well, they're usually made uh, with an understanding or an assumption that the individual parts remain, and they keep their identity within those interactions. But what we're saying is that when something interacts, you might actually lose some dispositional properties. Some of the things that you could do alone, you can't do anymore. But you can do something new together. I mean, it would be a bit like if you had two shy people, but when they uh, met up and became friends, they, they weren't shy anymore and they were actually quite uh, uh, funny and, and and maybe a bit of bullish. So um, it... You could think that an interaction would start a new causal process where the end result of that process is something entirely new. Uh, You could explain it even again with the wine glass and the hammer, (laughs) you know, because uh, a wine glass can do some things, but uh, in interaction with the hard hammer, you get a lot of broken glass pieces and these glass pieces can cut through flesh Uh, and the wine glass couldn't cut through flesh and the hammer hopefully uh, couldn't do it but you know the result it has this new property so it's it's not a mystery it's something very simple to understand i mean salt consists of two different chemicals that have wildly different uh, (laughs) uh properties from salt um and salt has none of these properties anymore and so so that's why i was thinking why aren't Everyone doing chemistry anti-reductionist and holists, you know, because they see this kind of emergence all the time in in chemical processes. But I mean, it's it's it all comes down to metaphors. If the metaphors that are used in the model and in the education treat things like they're little bullets and uh, or or little Lego bricks or keys and keyholes, uh, that that really shapes your way of thinking. So you kind of see the model in the world. So that's why the models are so powerful. And also I would like to add, it shapes your way of thinking because
2: you get this idea that, uh, you know, if you create the right molecule that interacts with the right uh, uh, receptor, then you are, you're done with the problem because you targeted that level, which is the relevant level. So it means that, you know what? The patient, by like the person receiving it, is the uh, the role is just to receive. So I, as a healthcare provider or you know scientist, I'm going to uh, handle all the problem that there is, <laughs> and then patient will will get it from me, and uh, his uh, role is to be there and, and receive it. So. We are, uh, we grew up in this uh, way of thinking, I did. Maybe the, I hope that the new generation uh, has a bit of a different point of view because, but not because we decided the sudden that doesn't work. It's just because we see it doesn't work. It's not like that. It's that you don't give uh, different people the same thing as if they were machines and they, they react all the same way you have. We know that now, and we, we know it's the obvious Piece of knowledge that patients react in different uh, different ways, but still we are in that framework. I mean, we still tend to be to think like that that you separate parts and then you target the relevant level, and that's a problem solved in a way. I mean, now it's I say it simply, but I mean, if you really dig down, that's still the way of thinking. And so,
0: you know, throughout. Well, throughout the book and throughout the the first six chapters, it's clear that the patient's narrative becomes really at the core of practice as a way to to get some kind of purchase on the potential causal properties factors. But I guess I'm then this this might not work at all. But you've got an individual person patient with another individual clinician in a room having a conversation about their pain, their injury, their illness. And I remember Rani you said to me in one of the previous conversations that those causes are there, they're objective in so much as they are there regardless of whether or not we notice them.
1: Yeah, ontologically, ontologically um, all causal processes are complex and there's not a closed system where there are only so and so many factors that are closely relevant and to understand which factors are relevant and to understand how they are relevant and what kind of things they interact with, that's, an, that's uh, something that is objective. It's not something that is... Uh, is just about how we perceive it or how we understand it. I mean, so the, that's why we, yeah, we say that uh, patient narrative is important because we need to understand more about the patient context. If you had very good ways to to test things, <laughs> uh, maybe you didn't need a narrative for everything, but it, it's it's a danger that patients are given a hundred page uh, questionnaire. <laughs> with (laughs) psychosocial and biomedical questions, because it's something about talking to people and finding out what they think is costly relevant. But you as the professional, you are the expert on the medical level or the the health uh, care level. So you will be the one understanding the theories and mechanisms of the treatment that you're providing. And you will know from your clinical expertise which kinds of things could interact uh, but you don't know what the patient knows about their own context and their own history. That could be costly relevant. So that's why we say the patient narrative is important because it it starts from that complexity. I mean, everyone is already in their whole state. It's not like you think. Well, biologically, <laughs> I experienced this, but psychologically, <laughs> to be ill is also to experience it emotionally. You know, so it, it's not something that we change and, and or we separate and and Anna-Louise Kirkingen and Kai-Brinjar Hagen and Brian Broom who write in the second part of the book they they write about how they work like this in their practice and none of them are saying that they're only interested in psychology or perspective or experiences uh, they're talking about how things that happen to you affect your health you know, so for instance, Brian Broom is, is an immunologist, but he's also a psychotherapist. And he sees how your life experiences can actually give you very weird uh, immunological responses that, that seem a mystery before you hear about people's uh, experiences. And uh, Anna-Louise Kirken, uh, and she works also with Lynn Getz, and they are very keen to expand the understanding of Uh, biology and they say the biomedical model is not the problem the problem is that our understanding of biology doesn't include the psychosocial level and they talk about embodied experiences so they say yeah you experience with your whole body uh, so trauma for instance or abuse or a lot of things these can you can have this top-down causation where your life experiences and traumas they can damage you on a cellular level mm-hmm. and Kai he talks about for instance uh these uh, psychosocial causes of uh, obesity um as an eating disorder you know but also you get all of these uh complex uh, and or comorbidities that come from morbid obesity so it I think all of these People, they challenge and they have seen in their own practice that these bottom-up explanations, they don't get to explain everything. Mm.
0: So that the narrative which is generated by a clinician and a patient will in itself be kind of unique. I mean, the interaction that occurs, the questions which are asked, the, 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 the responses from the patient to the clinician's questions, that whole interaction is likely to be different if it was done by a different clinician with the same patient. So that, that relationship to some extent has qualities which are quite quite unique to that, to that dyad. So I, I suppose what I was thinking is that, is it the case, and again, this might fall flat on its face and go nowhere, but if the causes are there and it just relies on a good case history or communication or discussion on the part of the clinician... If, you, if the patient saw a different clinician, had a different type of conversation, a different narrative emerges in that interaction, as it likely would, then different causal factors come to light because it's a slightly different conversation. Which causal factors were true or, or right?
1: Yeah, but uh, this is the complexity issue because because all causal processes are complex. All of those things might be true. So different specialists will pick out different parts. And if you're a specialist, you're going to say, oh, this is the problem. We need to treat that. And another one says, no, 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 this is a psychological problem we need. We need to look at this. This is the main issue. And uh, and uh, you will you will see in the chapter by Anna-Louise Kirchengen, when she talks about this person who comes to her as a general practitioner, that ended up, she got help uh, because there was an interdisciplinary team uh, working on her. So I think this kind of interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity is, is really something that fits well with the complexity idea that cause health is is talking about, because one clinician, yeah, you can you can do a lot. and actually Brian Broom, he explains also in his chapter how uh, they teach other. Uh, clinicians to do whole person uh, communication and have these conversations with their patients so how do you treat uh, the whole person because a lot of clinicians are uncomfortable with getting into personal stuff or it's not part of their specialty Mm. and both him and Kai Brinjærhagen they are very eager to say that anyone can do this it's not very hard it's just a matter of how you frame your questions or what focus you got.
0: Because if you acknowledge that the person is unique, if you take, then then the clinician is unique too, right? And then you've got two unique people interacting and that just throws up a whole another level of uniqueness. You know, the, the conversation is unique, the relationship is unique. And so it just muddies the water even more.
1: But what happened happened. So that's not... Uh, that's not relative that's the point you can you can um, find out more and more by asking the right questions or asking more questions and you will get more of the complexity so this is something that uh, elena and i have been talking about as well that people say well how can you just i think we talked about this in a previous episode if you just listen to people talk how do you know what is costly relevant well that's where your theories and mechanisms come in i mean it is a it is a level mm. of scientific evidencing and, and background here because we are not promoting uh, that people should just talk and think that uh, everyone knows best what is wrong with them. I mean, it is what we're saying is that statistics is not enough. You need to also understand how things work and understand these mechanisms because you need to have this deep causal understanding before you start saying what's the problem with people and what's the best treatment.
2: I also wanted to say that uh, talking about these narratives and uh, you know, the problematizing it even more, I think that uh, Brian Broom says, I think he writes it also in the, in the chapter, but one thing he says is, you know, the narrative that the patient gives you is a story in, in the end. And uh, what is also important to look is why does the patient choose these uh, parts Uh, I lied some parts and uh, leave some parts out or even chooses to leave uh, to lie maybe, or uh, not say a part of the truth, etc. These are also things that uh, tell you something, you know, I come from when I met uh, Rani, I had just, or no, when I started working with Rani, I met her before that. I had uh, just uh, finished an experience in the pharmacy where I was working with uh, uh, people with uh, opioid addiction and they were coming to the pharmacy to get their uh, treatment, their methadone. So yeah. if I had uh, believed, I mean, this is, a, unfortunately, is a power situation where I have something they really want and they want more of, you know, and they have to get it from me. So, what kind of narratives do I get from them? It's, it's a narrative where they try to, you know, trick me somehow. So that's that's the thing. Like, then it's deciding why are they doing that? Why do they think that I have this power? And why do they think they have to trick me and that I uh, cannot deal with the truth? Which I mean, actually I know. <laughs> so why, don't, why do they think I don't want to help them? Because uh, they think I'm an enemy and they have to kind of, make up some stories to tell me that they threw up and they need more methadone. So there's a lot of things there that you, that doesn't mean that what the patient tells you is the Bible and uh, you know, that's the truth. But there's a lot in what the patient tells you that tells you about what is, where is this patient now? And how does this patient see the relationship with me? And what does the patient think I can give him or her? Like, is he looking for something? Is looking for help? Does he think I'm an uh, enemy, or uh, or an, an, uh, is there an alliance, etc.? So there's so many things we mean with the patient narrative, other than you know listen to the patient, and uh, then you will have the the cause story so clear set there for you.
0: Yeah, and it's just me getting my head around either the causes are there just to be found, you just got to have the right conversation, and they're there, they're they they're in that narrative somewhere or they're a construct of the, of the interaction between the two, in which case they, they lie in the beholder, that we can pretty much create the causal factors that we we negotiate between us as patient and clinician.
1: You could also say it's both, because you could say something is already there, but it's also the way that we construct the story to ourselves. I mean, that's going to also change the way that we experience it so so what we say to each other and how we meet each other it's going to affect of course our own understanding of what happened and that's going to also uh, affect i mean we 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 see that that uh, the way that a patient and a practitioner meet that it affects their recovery you know in positive or negative ways so so it's it's a really important alliance And I think that also shows this kind of complex interaction because you might be a brilliant practitioner who has cured a thousand patients, you know, but this patient, you're a horrible practitioner for this patient because you don't go well together and you don't manage to get that person. And you might bring harm to that person because they see you as someone who is uh, opposing or you don't believe them or... Or you think it's all in their head because you keep talking about psychosocial factors. So, of course, all of these things are important. So, I'm I'm not saying that what happened happened and that's the only thing. I mean, everything, everything is going to matter because of this causal process of getting ill and the causal process of recovery. There are countless many psychosocial and biological factors that can come and play. Role you, you might be very close to recovery and suddenly you get an infection and you're back to to start. You never know what kind of things are going to influence the process.
0: So maybe summing up, you could tell us how dispositionism affects or should affect one's view of complexity in clinical practice. Yes,
2: yeah, so the, the take-home message of this chapter is that If we want to um, have a profound change in the clinical practice so that we, we work in a real holistic way, we should first change our uh, belief or basic assumption on what uh, complexity is. So first we rethink and then we um, reflect and uh, try to see whether this view of complexity uh, seen as genuine and emergent, as we've talked about, is what we want to embrace. And then once we embrace it uh, completely, then the norms that follow from that basic assumptions uh, are norms in which the investigation. So what you look at starts from the whole. So starts from the interaction with the patient and first you have to understand the, the complexity of the patient situation and the context before you zoom in. And that's where from this norm comes the practice that we call uh, really the whole, pe- whole person-centered practice, where the patient narratives in- intended like uh, understood like the patient situation and context where the patient is now, is the starting point of the inquiry without saying that all the rest is also very important, but you have to start to look, uh, with looking at the situation in its whole.
0: I was going to say the temptation is to start with looking at the parts and then moving to the whole, That's tends to what people do, right? They, let's start with the liver because that's easy, because <laughs> you've got to start somewhere and then let's look at the whole.
2: In theory, what we promote is that uh, you wouldn't uh, feel like starting with the parts if you have uh, uh, gone through your basic assumptions and if you've gone through what uh, you think uh, complexity is uh, and the relation, whole parts, etc. So, what we, uh, our hypothesis is that once you have revised your uh, uh, basic assumptions, then the Norse and practice will follow. So probably something we should uh, do at the level of, uh, uh, we should start with that from the education, you know, we should start very early with that so that people don't turn out like me. I mean, with me, it's, you know, my, I grew up with a certain uh, understanding of complexity. So it's it's very, very hard for me.
0: But it's not just you, I mean, colleagues and everyone that's been on the podcast has a similar story that they, their undergraduate training in healthcare is typically reductionist and biomedical and with with you know narrow assumptions around causality. And then you've got to almost unlearn this stuff and end up doing a podcast with 15 people around causality to realize a different way. Rani, Eleanor, thanks so much for talking through Chapter 5.
1: Thank you for having us again. <laughs> Thank you, Oliver.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.